Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, Jessica Pfeiffer here, and welcome to the very first episode of Education Suspended. I have to admit, it's really exciting to say that right now. I couldn't think of a better guest than my friend Michelle to join us on this first episode. Michelle is passionate about storytelling and the role it plays in helping us learn and its innate ability to change the brain. She's a consultant and a writer who works on innovation, organizational change, creativity, leadership development through the art of story. She's a published author with several novels, including her most recent book, which we're gonna talk about today, titled Resilience, The Life-Saving Skill of Story. Michelle also partners with schools to help teachers bring storytelling into the classroom as a social emotional tool, as well as a teaching option for learning ethics and behavioral change processes. Here is Education Suspended with my friend, Michelle Auerbach. Let's go, let's do this. Michelle, let's, I mean, it sounds, it's a simple place to start, but maybe not. Like, what's your story? How did you get into this? Um, Your book, The Life-Saving Skill of Story, we're going to dive into it, but I'll just say front and center, I I think it's a required text for all teachers as they prepare to become teachers. But yeah, what's your story? How did you get into this? So I was the kid who you found sitting under the piano at the family event reading. Like, you know, not realizing that interacting with the other people was maybe what you were there for. I have always found myself deeply immersed in story. And I couldn't have told you what it was about it as a kid that worked for me. But now I can tell you as an adult that I lived in a somewhat, um, you know, trauma-inducing environment. And the self-regulation that story allowed me to, and, and the ways in which I could use it on myself to not only like downregulate my system, but also like leave the present moment were so intensely pleasurable and gave me so much control in a world where I had none that, um, you know, I just knew as a kid, like whatever it is that, that's involved in doing this, I want to do this. So for a while, I thought I was going to become a folk singer. I grew up in the era of Holly Near as like the feminist folk singing sort of idol. And she was a friend of, of the sort of women's group that my mom had formed. This was in the early 70s. And so I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a folk singer because she used story in this really beautiful way. Um, I can't sing at all. So it turned out that that wasn't what what ended up happening, but I did end up becoming a professor and I taught ancient world languages and literature, which allowed me to be immersed in stories across all kinds of different um, communities and and faith and wisdom traditions. And um, that, that was very satisfying for me. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's what I'm doing, right? I'm a teacher. And then I ended up getting offered a job, (laughs) leaving, leaving teaching. I was on sabbatical and somebody asked me, hey, will you come bring these wisdom tradition stories to a client of ours who is suffering pretty hard and they're going through a change management process. And, you know, it was a big corporate gig. And could you do this? And I said, sure. Who is it? And they said, no, no, you sign the NDA first. And I was like, okay. 
So it turned out it was McDonald's right after Super Size Me came out. And one of my colleagues was doing a change management process with them and just wanted storytelling to be part of how they talked to themselves and each other. And so I walked in and talked about the Bhagavad Gita of all things um, in, in the midst of this huge gnarly process they were going through. And allow, what, what they discovered was, oh, we're not the first person, people that have ever experienced something like this where we've done harm and feel shame. Right. And what I discovered was that there was a world outside of teaching in the classroom where these things actually mattered to people's everyday lives. And, you know, I consider myself kind of like a Marxist feminist, like super way off the left end of the scale. So there I am, like in the in the belly of the beast thinking, oh, as a Marxist, I need to take into consideration, like there are real people suffering real pain in this system. And I'm dismissing that they need any attention because I, don't, I disapprove of the context. Like who the hell do I think I am? And so I ended up you know, asking that friend, can I work with you a little bit more? Can I work with you a little bit more? So it turns out you know, my, then my, um, my sabbatical came to an end and I quit which sent everyone in the, in the, my, you know, like my Dean was like, what do you, what do you mean? Nobody quits. You're the department chair. Like you don't leave academia with a tenured position. And I was like, bye. Um, and so I've been using story to, to do change work for communities, individuals and uh, organizations since 2007, because that was a smart time to leave a tenure track position and go start a consulting business. But um, it, it worked because, you know, college professors are kind of renowned for being someone underpaid. And I didn't notice that there was a recession because everybody else was just all of a sudden in my position. So I left. Um, so that I've been doing it for like 14 years now. Um, and, and I just find it so deeply gratifying to walk into a place where people are actually experiencing a lot of the difficulties that go along with change, which can mean learning things, right? I mean, education is really a change modality, right? You're teaching yeah. people, they're going from point A to point B, they're learning, they're growing as they're in your classroom. And so walking into those spaces and saying, hey, we actually know something about this and not just in a, in a theoretical intellectual way, but like we have a history of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of doing this together in ways that worked. So let's use those as opposed yeah. to pretending like this is some new thing nobody's ever seen before. Yeah. So that's, that's the background. So I guess the first thing that stands out what you just said about like we have this history of these thousands upon thousands of years. I think when I was reading your book, there were like I felt like there were cultural implications that were coming up for me. Um, I feel like I've heard of storytelling and more of the indigenous, the Latina, the Latino, the black communities, and I I haven't heard about it much in kind of the like Anglo-Saxon white communities. And I don't know. I mean, is that something that you've looked into of of why? some cultures gravitate towards it more than others. I don't understand why everyone doesn't do it, but. Trauma? Yeah. Trauma. I mean, you yeah. know, the, the way that I grew up with it, I'm Jewish and I grew up with, you know, my grandfather fought in World War II. My, you know, my family line kind of stops <laughs> in Europe at that point, right? And there's all this epigenetic trauma that comes along with, yeah. with being yeah. Jewish. that has been studied by Rachel. Oh my gosh, what's her last name? Rachel, it'll come to me. But anyway, she studied the, <laughs> She's a trauma, an epigenetic trauma researcher, um, Rachel Yehuda, who, who studied this, the exact community I, I grew up in, the Jewish community in Cleveland and the community of Holocaust survivors. And I noticed that all those folks, like my grandfather's generation and, and previous, and even my mom's generation, because she was, she was born pre-World War II, um, 
when you start to talk about the things, the lessons that they need you to learn, they switch to story because they want it to hit you in a certain way and they don't want, yeah. they don't want to have you argue with them, right? So I think that communities that have experienced more trauma, more displacement, more diasporic displacement, more need to adjust to things that were not of their making have a stronger story tradition than, than, than you know, there's still a story tradition in, you know, in the sort of world of folks where they might've been in charge of things, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or in some way the oppressors as opposed to the oppressed, but I think the trauma worked differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you uh, said, I think one of the lines I had to write down is you said, stories need trouble to succeed. Is that related to what you're talking about? Yes, 100%. I think we all know, like, we all know the person who tells stories about themselves and they're always good and it, everything always works out. And you realize like, oh, those aren't stories. Those are bragging. Like, that's not a story. Like I went, I did this and I succeeded is actually not a story. Um, I don't know what it is, but, but whatever that is, it's not a story. So in order to have a story, physiologically in your, in your brain, you need cortisol and you need oxytocin, meaning there needs to be some sort of trouble in the story that helps you go, whoop, I'm focused, right? And, and that it captures your attention. And usually it's because your body says, oh, this is something I need to learn from because it's a potential threat. And that's what raises your cortisol level. And if I listen to this, I won't have to go through it myself. I'll know, right? And then, the, the, and then it needs a character who you care about and that's the oxytocin production. And what they've discovered is when those two things happen, number one, those are the best stories, but number two, those are also stories that allow for pro-social change. So if you are trying to elicit, say from your middle schoolers, a certain kind of pro-social behavior, which, you know, can, can be challenging sometimes. I definitely taught, I taught creative writing for a while in middle school. But if you want to elicit the pro-social behavior, you make them identify with the person in the story who actually did the thing. But the worse the situation is, the more they like the character. Yeah. Oh my so gosh, I'm having, yeah. What? Sorry, I'm interrupting you. I'm having this total flashback of, a, and I don't remember my middle school teacher's name but I'm literally having this, this vision when I was, on, I was on the green team at Ames Middle School and it was a social studies class. And our teacher was teaching us about the slave trades. And I, I was so funny that this is coming up. So literally what he did, he brought in wooden pallets and he laid them on the floor. And we all laid on the ground on these wooden pallets and he turned off the lights and he made, he put like music or not music, but like ocean tides in the background. And then he started reading journal entries from slaves that had been brought over. And oh my gosh, like here I am, how many years later, right? But like he used that story and that experience. I don't know, I don't know. That just totally came up for me. That's kind of random, but it just totally hit home for what I heard you say for that as a, from a teacher. It's not random at all. I mean, what he did was he actually heightened the experience of story being a somatic practice, which it already is. Um, but, but like that, I can feel it. I can feel it just from you telling the story, right? I could feel the hair on the back of my neck raise and, and I got the shivers, right? So whatever he did, it's powerful yeah. even in the retelling of the story. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of it. 
Steve, go ahead. You look like you're going to say something oh, very well, brilliant. Just, just no, not, not brilliant. I want to I want to ask more about what you just said, the re, the power of the retelling of the story. That really caught my attention just now. That That's when you know it's a really great story. Um, can you expand on it? Maybe that's maybe that's enough said, but I just loved what you just said. And and I and I had never thought of it that way. Well, I mean, I think that one of the powers of story is that being a story listener is actually the skill training to be a storyteller. And that the people who are good absorbers of story tend to then be able to be good storytellers. So part of what goes on in a classroom is you're really trying to figure out like, how do you get past the things that are going on for the, the, the folks in the room, whether they're adult learners or kids, how do you get past the things they're showing up with that might be blocks in order that they can be really good receivers of information, right? I mean, if you, if, if you, it's, it's, you know, the, um, what's his name? I always want to call it Maslow's hierarchy, but it's not. It's the hierarchy of learning that is so popular. Blue, Bloom's, Bloom's taxonomy. Yeah, Bloom's taxonomy. Yeah, so Bloom's if you look taxonomy. at Bloom's taxonomy, just the ability to be able to take stuff in is, is a wrong. On, on, the on the taxonomy and then the ability to share it back, right? So you're actually working at that bottom level of Bloom's taxonomy, just super powerful to first be a story listener and then be a storyteller. And all the skills, like there's so many, so much social emotional learning in just doing that with folks. Like, can you listen? Do you realize that when you listen, it's happening in your body? Can you feel the places where you're interested? Can you, you know, and you can watch, folks in a, cl a classroom, I taught for a decade, right? So you can watch folks in a classroom and you know if it's working because of their bodies, mm -hmm. right? And then if they absorb enough of what's working and you say, okay, your turn, like you're gonna present out, you're gonna, I used to use as a, um, as a teaching tool all the time that I would pick a section of whatever we were learning and have them prepare it and be the teachers. And if you did it far enough into the semester, they all understood what had happened to them as students and wanted to do that. You know, sometimes, sometimes if it, it went poorly, they wanted to do it differently, right? But, but they were responding to what they had learned as story listeners. And especially for kids, you know, I did a podcast interview a while ago for a parenting group and they talked about, they wanted to say like, how do you teach social emotional skills to your kids? How do you teach empathy? And I was like, mm -hmm. through story. You, know, you care about the characters in the story and you talk about them like they're real people and you care about the things that are happening to them. And so for teaching empathy, compassion, you know, some of those affective things using story, you know, Jessica gave a great example, like now what it was like to be a slave feels very real in your body. So though you don't have the whole experience because right. you only got it as a story, it's a little bit like a homeopathic dose of it. Like you got enough of it that it's going to stay there. Yeah. Yeah, and you can, and I think I think what st stood out, right, as as you were talking, and I was kind of having those like somatic somatic responses. Not only was my body kind of remembering of like, oh, middle school, but it came back to me like that quick, out of nowhere, just by what you were saying, that ability to connect on on that recall piece, which again is kind of what you were just talking about. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the goals of education, right? You want people to be able to remember things. And I think about like the, the gap in the summer when students would then you know, begin to go backwards <laughs> in terms of math skills or reading skills or whatever. And I think story is one of those practices that helps you bridge that gap because it, it so deftly codes things in long-term memory because it's using emotion. And so for things that you want kids 
kids or adults to remember over a period of time, it's better if it comes in a story than if it comes in a bullet point list. They've done all this research about memory and, and, and how long memory lasts and the difference between a bullet pointed list of the same information and the information given in a, as a story. And, you know, I mean, it's just the research bears out that you will remember it longer, more clearly and maybe, you know, you'll remember it your way. I mean, story has a, yeah. the great part about story is it's really about what you hear, but you will remember it way better. So as a teacher trying to work with any kind of kids who might have, you know, like any kind of adverse childhood events or anything that makes them show up in the classroom, not able to be fully present and you want to increase their memory, this is how you do it, right? Because it works with the body. It's gentle, it's kind, it's fun, it's engaging. Yeah. Right. And, and I think we, you know, those of us who are English professors, we totally get this. But even when you're talking about math or you're talking about science, the things that I remember from like Mr. Beasley, my middle school math teacher, were when he created a story about geometry or, you know, the, the facts that I remember still, you know, 50 years later or 40 years later are the ones that came to me that way. Yeah. And I can still remember him telling it. And I can remember the dots he drew on the blackboard, you know, because because he told it to us in a way that allowed us to encode it a lot more easily into long-term memory. Yeah. Is it a, a sensory detail thing that, that makes it so powerful or the more senses you can engage? I'm curious. I know you mentioned something about that in your book. Yeah. And I, I wrote down, the more sensual, the better. That probably wasn't the right uh, language. <laughs> Maybe know. not for the classroom. But... Um, <laughs> It's I wouldn't just, say that to my eighth graders, but I'll, I'll say it to you guys. No, so, okay, I'll give you a phrase you can use that's a little less, like more PG rated. So one of the great poets that I studied with in graduate school is a woman by the name of Anne Waldman, who is a very famous beat poet. Um, she has a very interesting history. And she used to call talk about the luminous detail. Mm -hmm. That the thing that stands out to you is always the luminous detail. And so a, along with needing character and trouble, Right, which is what we I, I call a plot. Right, you have a character and a plot. So you have a you have a person you care about, and you have trouble that they get in. The more sensory detail that you use, the better. To a point, you know. I don't know if anybody's read the opening of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, but like it's literally several pages of sensory detail, and you don't care about the character, and there is no plot. So you're like, really? Can I skim this? You know, do I need to know the water glistening on the color of the blade of grass? No. But when you do use sensory detail, like Jessica did a great example, the, the lights being turned off, the wooden pallets on the floor, the, you know, the sound of the ocean waves, like those are all things that make it real. And how do I say this? Adjectives aren't that useful. I love a good adjective, right? Like it was really great. It was there, but but it's not that useful. What's really useful to people is, is them being able to see, feel, taste, hear, smell, because those are things that that do two things, two, two different and adjacent things. They bring it into your body. So they bring the story directly into your body, which, which we know from research on um, all kinds of uh, you know, like polyvagal theory, that, that more information is actually going that way than is going this way, right? More, sorry, if you're just listening to this, more information is going up from your gut and your heart into your brain than the other way around. So mm -hmm. if you are seeding the body with responses, which are details, which are luminous mm -hmm. details, if you're seeding the body with those, they, those impact us in a somatic way and it gets sent up 
the vagus nerve and, and into your brain. And it says like, you're, you're deeply and fully present to this thing. Now, this thing is not happening in the room at the moment, which is another whole other thing to talk about, about default mode networks and sort of how that works. But you're, you're, you're being seeded. You're almost being like fertile soil for those details to be planted in. And we know that the stuff that goes to your brain and down doesn't really work as well because that's not how regulation is happening actually. Like, you know, so that that's the somatic part. I mean, and then obviously I'm doing this because of Dan Siegel, but the, you're, you know, the, 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 the cortical, the cortical stuff that's going on, if you bring people into your body, they, 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 they become disinhibited, right? They, they tend to leave that mode of cortical inhibition, which they might've been in and come into a place where they're actually fully online to listen. And so it seems backwards, but to, increase people's cortical function you want to first take them into their body and that's what the details do yeah it's so interesting because i mean i think what's coming up is you know we talk a lot about that somatosensory input right like somatosensory interventions being a really good way to regulate the student to regulate the human um and at the same time so story has that going on and then i think the other piece that stands out for me is that good stories have good rhythm right? The books that I'm into, um, there's an ebb and flow to what I'm reading, to what I'm listening to. And again, both of those, A, are regulating, but I'm absorbing more, right? Those are, in, in all senses, like rhythm is really that cornerstone of learning. And a good story does that. And you see that in early childhood, right? If I think about the stories that I'm reading to Quinn, there's rhythm up the wazoo, right? There's somatosensory, she can feel the pages. And I just don't know, like, I feel like at some point in our current educational setting, like, we just kind of kick all that out. We kick stories out, we kick somatosensory out, we kick rhythm out. And yet we still expect these students to learn and actually try to learn more. So I, yeah. Or we dismiss, yeah, I think, I think we're saying the same thing. We, di we, we, we can also dismiss the people, not the stuff. So like the most rhythmic thing I can think of to teach like, you know, high school, middle school and adults is Shakespeare. And we dismiss certain groups of students as not necessarily Shakespeare material, which always has made me extremely violently enraged, right? Because I, <laughs> I feel as though the rhythm of, of the way, you know, the, the, it's just, it's freaking brilliant the way in which it moves back and forth between a scanned, like dactylic hexameter or iambic pentameter, it moves back and forth between scansion and story, scansion and story. And what it's doing is exactly the thing you want students to be able to do, go into the default mode network and kind of be in the body, come back to think about something, right? It's the same yeah. thing that mindfulness teaches, which is actually that mind wandering is a really good state oh, to yeah. be in, right? That default mode network, like all the good stuff happens there. And the, but, but the problem is all the bad stuff happens there too, right? And yeah. the ability to bring yourself back out and then go back in is something you learn from poetry, from Shakespeare. So, you know, I, I taught Romeo and Juliet in a program I taught for a long time in a post-secondary, P-S-E-O, post-secondary education opportunity program, which was a, you know, college for high school students, basically. And mostly it went to the rich white neighborhoods around where we live. Um, and I volunteered because I really wanted to do this to go into a school that was mostly for students who had been kicked out of other schools, were struggling, um, pregnant, prison time, you know, all that stuff. And I, I, that's where I wanted to go. So I taught in, I taught college composition and college uh, literature at this school for most of my teaching career. 
And Romeo and Juliet was always the thing people loved the most because the they could they understood the conflict between the groups of people. And I had one class where two people in my class had both been arrested for um, for dealing drugs, and they were kind of in competing competing um, groups of people, right? Who who were not, I don't want to say gangs, but they were, you know, in, in competing groups. And they were like, wait a second, we're the Capulets and you're the Montagues. So like, as we're reading Romeo and Juliet, and they're kind of processing their experience of having yeah. like done violence, ended up in jail, back in school. And like Romeo and Juliet was the moment when they were like, oh, somebody gets me. Yeah. And I think that that it's exactly what you're describing, like the rhythmic parts of it take you into a certain zone. And then the conflict brings you right back to, to very full, you know, cortical engagement. And then you go back into the zone. And if you have students reading it out loud, um, then, the, then it's even more somatic, right? And so I just, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff, I don't know what to call it, content stuff, amazing things out there that we either dismiss the stuff or we dismiss the people and say they're not, they're not necessarily the right people for this stuff. And I find both things kind of disturbing, yeah. you know, mm. that, that when you talk about um, what kids read in the classroom and you, and, and you start to talk about like what the canon is of things that are read, I feel like that canon dismisses a lot of important things, right? So that's stuff getting dismissed. That like, why aren't we reading, uh, if we're gonna read the Bible as literature in college, why are we not reading like creation myths from the Yoruba tribe or creation yeah. myths from South and Central America? And because those are things, those the stuff's gotten dismissed while the people are still there, right? And then you've got people who get dismissed when the stuff's still there. So it's a, it's it's complicated, but I think it ends us up, it ends us up in a more limited space than we should be. Can, can I ask you one question about those, I'm gonna go back to those kids where you taught Romeo and Juliet um, and, you know, whether they were gangs or just social organization, you know, whatever, whatever they belong to, were they able then to have a little perspective taking of the other side? Oh my gosh, they adored each other then because they were like, you're the Capulets and we're the Montagues. And suddenly they had a context, right? They had a, a, a schema in which to drop their situation. Like, because I think one of the things that happens um, through our human development is that there's a certain myopia right, a certain short-sightedness that happens until we're, I don't know, in our late twenties, where we really do believe that things are just happening to us and that they don't, there's not a historical precedent and that we, that our parents can't possibly understand and nobody could. <laughs> and as we, as we become more contextual, whatever you want to say, critical thinkers, but I would say, you know, contextual beings, that falls away and we're able to see things in greater context. And I think as we get older, that context gets bigger and bigger, like, oh, everyone's experiencing this, right? It's not just me. Um, I was on a call before this one where one of the women who was my age said, oh, I'm having frozen shoulder. And three other people were like, oh, me too. That's just something that happens to us, right? And I thought that's context where everyone, you know, you don't think it's just happening to you. But when you're in high school or middle school, oftentimes you think the thing you're going through no one's ever experienced before. And so when you get a schema in which you can drop it into and you're like, oh, this was written 400 years ago and they were, they were killing each other in the same ways that we are. And, 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 for the, and it, looking at them, it seems a little dumb. Yeah. 
right? But the heightened emotion of that play and the like, oh my God, Romeo's dead. No, he's not. Juliet's dead. No, she's not. Like, what the hell? Everybody, everybody gets completely drawn into it and it allows them to see their own situation. Obviously, part of that is teaching, right? If you just threw Romeo and Juliet at them, that wouldn't happen. But, but part of it is being able to like constantly bring that stuff back to, okay, so what does that say about us? So, uh, you know, in your book, you, you provide a couple like simple equations, right? And I'm wondering when you're working with teachers, right? When you're working with schools that are work wanting to embed some of these aspects, regardless of what class it is, right? Social studies, math, literacy, what, I mean, what would be an equation or what comes to mind for things that are really important to, to focus on? So there are a bunch of ways to look at story and I, I'm going to tell you a few things that aren't in the book because they're, I think they're really useful for teachers. So I have a story equation in the book that says, you know, that, that a story is what's going on, what happened, and what did I do about it? And what's going on is setting the stage for the, the present scene, the like, here's where we are. And, and if you talk about, if you ever want to look this up, there's a thing called Freytag's uh, arc, which is Gustav Freytag, who's in a German uh, I don't know what you would call him now, literary critic, philosopher, who talks about that, that there's an arc of narrative, right? It starts out here, an inciting incident happens, things get more and more difficult, there's a crisis which resolves things and then things kind of go back to normal. And so what's going on is everything up to the inciting incident. So like I'm just walking to school one day and you know my shoes untied and you know I can't find the gum in my backpack or whatever. And then I look up and there's this really big guy standing there, right? I mean, up to the inciting incident. And then the the what happened is this series of trouble things that happened. And then this happened and I did this, but it didn't work. And then this happened, but I did this and it did work. And you keep talking about all the trouble until you get to the biggest trouble, which is the crisis of the story. And in general, that biggest trouble is everything you've learned by, by failing basically up till that point enables you to succeed. And that's a great message, right? I think mm -hmm. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, we are in a moment right now, I'm trying to say this in the least, in the most neutral way. We're in a moment right now where we're seeing what it looks like to have somebody lead who doesn't believe trouble's supposed to happen to you and you're never supposed to be quote unquote a loser. Mm -hmm. There is no flexibility. There's no ability to see resilience. There's no capacity for discomfort, right? And what that, that what's going on section or what, what happens section does is you build internal capacity for discomfort. It's uncomfortable to watch someone in a chase scene who you think is going to die. And you're mm -hmm. actually learning to sit with physical discomfort, right? So that's that middle section. And, but what happens is that you, you succeed or fail based on how well you learn the lessons from the difficulty. Right, heroes don't, it's, you, if you have it at the beginning, there's no interest in the middle. Like if you've got everything you need, I'm perfect, I'm great, I could do this, I've always had the skill, I've always had the talent, I'm a people person, whatever. You're like, yeah, well, like you, those are the people where you're actually making a grocery list in, in your head while they're telling the story. And then the really interesting part is then, well, well then what happened, right? And if you don't tell people what they're supposed to believe, they will draw the right conclusions themselves from the story, the right conclusions for their learning in that moment. So I remember once something happened and I said to one of my kids, and they were probably, I don't know, I think it was my son and he was about 12. I said, oh, you must feel really good about that. And he looked at me and said, how the hell would you know how I feel? Hmm. And I was like, you're right, I feel good about it. 
how do you feel? And he was like, I feel pretty good about it. You know, but it was, it was, I, I learned from that moment that, that he will draw the, the right conclusion. So, you know, when he comes and tells me this whole story, the last question I would always ask is, so? Like, and so? And then he would say, well, so now I feel great. Or so then I learned blah, blah, blah. And if you ask that question, the conclusions that people draw for themselves will be the ones they need to learn. So that story equation is the really most basic one, right? And you can use it and you can teach kids to listen for it. You can teach them to tell it, but both things work, right? Listen for it, listen for it. In every movie you see, you'll, you'll you know, movies come in three parts. They always do. I mean, that's how they're scripted. So if you tell a kid to just listen for those three questions, every book, every movie, every story they're told, they can tell it back to you. Um, and then they just need a little practice in creating it. So that's one kind of story. But I also do a lot of other things in the classroom, depending on the goal that you have for the students. So if you want them to get a more complex view of a situation, if it's a history class, a social studies class, um, or, or, you know, I used it a lot with folks who are coming back and reporting out from internships and, you know, or from things that had happened not in the classroom, you can use the standard questions and I have, I've made decks of cards for teachers to use, obviously totally useless during COVID, but I have these decks of cards that have all the story questions, who, what, when, where, why, how, and then, then the added question, what worked, what would I do differently and how did I feel, right? So you can use those classic reporter questions and you have them like literally lay it out in order with the cards and then I have picture cards that go with them and they would put a picture next to each thing to remind themselves and then you know we could walk around and hear each other's stories so that's another way to approach it in the classroom is to use reporter questions who what when where why how what happened what you know what happened what would I do differently and how did I feel and and that'll allow folks to tell it in their own order and you can have them do, I mean, you know, when you're teaching remotely, you can have them pull images off the internet, right? Like when, when I have people in the room, I tend to ask them, please not to use the internet, but you know, if you've got the internet's what you got and to, you know, they could drag pictures into those boxes and then tell you, you know, show it to you and tell you the story. And that works really well too. I mean, because we have so many modes that we're used to hearing stories in, not just, not just yeah. the, um, not just the like, standard Hollywood movie. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking there's research that was done on successful legal writing, which seems like it would have nothing to do with this. Successful brief, legal brief writing actually includes story. The ones that, that the, the briefs that were taken up by the court and not passed on were the ones with story in them. So, you know, we, we expect it in a lot of different modes. So those are just two ways that you could use it. The, the, the reporting stuff isn't isn't in this book, it's gonna be in the next book, but it, it, it's not there yet. I think, I mean, what's coming up for me is also music, right? Lyrics and song, it's another really good way to find story and to connect with students. So, um, and sorry, I'm kind of monopolizing this. So Grainer, you just say Pfeiffer, move on back. I know we both have a ton of things that we wanna discuss. I think what, what, you know, if I think about kind of the reparations and the healing and the ownership in education right now that we need to own, um, for the injustices and the harm and pain that we've caused for our students of color. I think stories also coming up as, as a major way that we could that we could and should be doing this because in, in, for me, I think it feels as though we've just taken a story like you said and changed it. 
right? The dominant, the dominant culture has taken it, changed it, and that's not the real story. And so we're at a time in which we need to own that and and retell it in a way that's kind of dealing with the trauma that we that we ensued on our students. And I think you know people get scared. <clears throat> Let me rephrase that. White people get scared that they're not going to do it right. Right. That like, oh my gosh, now you're asking me to step into this role of of being the champion for things that I have purposefully not been educated to understand, right? Like my whole white supremacist education that I went through with me, Ivy League education, right? Um, the, so what do I do? And, and the, the truth is there are already experts out there, right? Those stories are there. You don't need to be the expert. You need to be the witness to the expert. And I think that's part of, you know, the underlying supremacies in education are like, well, I'm the expert. It's like, I can be an effective witness. And that in and of itself is a pretty healing stance to take. And then if you mm -hmm. teach books, if you teach stories, if you teach history, that's already written down by somebody else who really is the expert in that area, and you teach students to be present with that, then you've, you've gone a really long way without yourself having to even vaguely pretend you're the expert there, right? So I remember, um, so I majored in college. I, I, this was just wonderful. I majored in college in, um, in African-American literature and I studied with an absolutely brilliant genius who had come to Columbia University to start the African-Americans or to, to support the African-American studies department. Um, and now actually runs the jazz studies department at Columbia, which is kind of cool. And his name was wow. Robert O'Mealy. And he grew up in California. And at the time when the Black Panthers were really the folks taking care of people in his neighborhood, really feeding kids and, 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 and doing education. And as he grew up, he, the, one of the guys from the Black Panthers said to him, you know, you're gonna come join us, right? And he was like, Yes, but in academia, like I, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to teach people, and that's what I'm going to do, and that's going to be my thing. And and they were like, "All right, right on, dude, go do it." Right, like that's that's exactly right. And he ended up going to Harvard and you know doing all these things. But he really felt like there was justice work just in in teaching his American literature, 1865, or you know from you know the beginning of the country to 1865, and then 1865 to the present, and making sure there was actually like academic justice work done in who was read and, and, and what we learned and what version of history we learned. And I got hooked on the idea that, that, that there's justice work and, and inclusive inclusion work just in reading really, really like amazing stuff. So I think that white folks think they're, they're supposed to be perfect and they're supposed to, we, they, we. It's hard, I, I don't know where Jews fall in this because like my grandfather definitely wasn't white, right? Because he was redlined out of the same neighborhoods that the African-Americans were redlined, but then I'm definitely white. And like, I don't understand quite when that happened, but that's a whole other story. So <laughs> I sometimes say they and I sometimes say we because sometimes I think like, it's, it's confusing to me, but I, I'll work it out eventually. Um, I know how, but, but, you know, I was raised in an education system that assumed that as a white person, I wouldn't be interested in those things and have no knowledge of them and was never given any information. And then you show up and you're supposed to do it perfect and be perfect and be the hero and be the teacher. And in fact, there's so much power to showing a classroom full of folks how to be witness. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think Maybe I experience this personally. I, I live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and I, my first apartment was probably 
five minutes from George Floyd's corner. And after all of that, I thought as a, as a teacher, maybe as just as a person, I needed to go to one of those marches. Not as an expert, <laughs> believe me. I wasn't going there as a mental health or education expert. I was going there as a witness. And I knew I just had to put my mask on and shut up and listen. But I, I hope, you know, for all you guys, I didn't want anyone else telling that story who had never been there and, or who was just repeating something they had heard. And, and I think that that firsthand experience allows us to tell our own story, but it also was, you know, just because I was shut up and listening, it, it was very powerful as a change moment or <laughs> a change beginning, let me say that, to say, I, I gotta pay more attention to their stories. And imagine how cool it would be to raise a classroom full of witnesses, right? Which I call story listeners, right? I mean, the, the, like where you're actually curious, you're showing up intellectually, emotionally, and academically, and even spiritually curious. And that curiosity takes you a really long way in this world where we've created all these systems that don't work, right? That the idea that you know anything generally gets in the way of fixing it. So curiosity is, is, at least for me, when I see people show up with intellectual curiosity and emotional curiosity, I think you have the best chance of healing this. Mm. I, wanna, I wanna hop back. So, you know, we were talking about the, the benefits, right? That's what we've been focusing on. And one thing that comes up is the regulating aspect of story. So when we think about how humans regulate, there's four, four major ways that we look at. Um, there's self-regulation, which you talked about, which is more of that top-down, right? Using your cortex to talk yourself into feeling better, essentially. Um, there's somatosensory, use of the body. There's relational, connection with others. And then there's pharmacological. Um, but for you, when you think about the regulating aspects of story, how does that fit? How does that fit into us as a human species to feel better? So it's funny, I'm also a novelist um, and I've written a bunch of novels. And the one that I'm finishing right now or trying to sell um, is, a, is a kid's book. And, the, and in, in the, it's, it's a young adult novel. And in the book, the heroine of the book, um, her father's just died. And she's a big reader. And so she keeps telling herself intellectually all the stories of famous orphans in history, right? So she, she's using every orphan she can think of um, and, and how, they, how they did it. And, you know, and she goes through all these famous orphans in literary history. So that she's using <clears throat> this idea of, of talking to herself, right? Self-regulation in that way and using story to do that, right? To tell herself all these stories. I'm gonna be okay because you know this, this orphan was okay or that orphan was okay from history. So that, that to me is what we already think of as story, right? If you tell somebody a story of survival, they will be able to survive. I um, <clears throat> ran a youth program for a while um, and one of the kids in the program was going through some really difficult stuff with their family and I said, you know, what would you do if you were the heroine of this or the hero, the, the heroic aspect in a story and you had to make it three months <clears throat> and survive? 
like what would what would a hero what would the hero of the story do right you've read a lot of a lot of like uh you know like oh what's what was really popular at the time it was that uh mocking jay book what's the what's the book hunger games the hunger games like if you were the person the hero well in the done hunger jamie games, well done <clears throat> what would you do and this kid was then able to go through, I would do this and I would do this and I would do this and I would do this, right? So that's a certain amount of regulation. Yeah, exactly. That's a certain amount of regulation. So that, that's one aspect of it that works really well. The second aspect of it is that if, if a kid is able to immerse themselves in story, we take in story, I think, I've been doing a ton of research about this and I like there's stuff all around the edges, which is very frustrating when you actually want to do stuff that's 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 research based because I can't tell you what I'm about to say is entirely true, but I can tell you that everything around the edges indicates that storytelling and story listening especially is happening in your default mode network, meaning you're in that mind wandering phase, you are not in fact doing active critical thinking as it's happening or active you know, cortical thinking as it's happening. And that's a really healthy place to be, right? That gets you into this much more interior mode where things draw, draw associations and stuff happens. And you know, in the, that whole default mode network thing about where, what parts of your brain are activated. So that helps you. And, it, and then it's also a somatic practice. So the details happen in your body, the feelings happen in your body, the rhythm happens in your body. So it's, it's regulation in that second way also. And then story finally is also relational. Right, you're building empathy skills. You're relating to the character, to the person telling the story. You're trying to figure out, you know, story builds a certain ability to do work, theory of mind work. Like you being able to look at the other person and try to understand what their reality is like. And that's, that's the basis for re relational regulation, right? You're actually real, I'm real. Let's, you know, there's, and, and the connection between us creates co-regulation. And so story really builds those skills because it's, it builds them at first and low stakes way. The real person is in the book, the movie, this, the song, whatever, and they're not dangerous to you in any way. They're, they, they're not a threat. And so if you've had difficulty with certain groups of people, you know, you, you aren't having to do that. You're doing it in a way that, that has what, what George Lakoff and a lot of the researchers call like that's that the metaphoric distance. Like there's just the, meta, the, the separation a little bit. So you're practicing co-regulation and in a slightly safer way. Hmm. Um, I got to write down metaphoric distance. Oh, I don't, I don't well, that's, and that's the, the story. The thing about metaphoric distance is so great is that like you aren't saying you, 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 right? You should do this and you should do that. And you should behave this way and you should do that. You're just, you're, you're creating a metaphor, which is the story functions as like a extended metaphor and it's them. And so then you choose to apply it to you. You choose you. And that's another thing, right? When you're working with kids who've come from any kind of traumatic situation, they have the agency to, to opt in. Your body lets you opt in. To, to, to having that experience. And so if there's that metaphoric distance, you choose to step it across the barrier yeah. or not, if it's not safe, but you choose. And that, that agency granting 
is something we don't think about with story, but you know, you could just totally ignore it if you felt like it, because um, it's not something you can hear right then, or you step in and that's, that's your choice as the, as the story listener. Is that what happened with your Romeo and Juliet experience? Yeah, I think it was, it was compelling enough that they started to step into it, you know? And, and I think the insults at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet where they're hurtling insults at each other, but it's actually in scanned meter, did it, right? Cause they were like, whoa, was that like the biggest diss I've ever heard? And I was like, yeah, and it rhymed, you know? And we, <laughs> they were like, we know, we know about that, you know? Like we understand about dissing someone in a rhyme. We got that, right? And so it was this great moment where they were like, oh, I like how that feels. Right, like I like that. Like when I'm reading that, and I'm Mercutio, and I am like skewering you in in scanned verse. Like, can't sort of can't. Who could say no to that? I appreciate that you keep bringing up this concept of like almost a, almost a place of reflection that we go to when we're reading. And you know, another way that I always talk about it is like there's almost a dissociative element of of story and that's one thing that we talk about in education, right? We need to embed more reflective dissociation for our students so that they can actually process and put pieces of this crazy world together and change and grow and move things into long-term memory. So it, I love that that's part of a story, right? That, that that's innately happening during a good story. Yeah, and it, in lots of modes. It can, you can be listening to it, you can be watching it, you can be yeah. reading it, right? For, for people with different levels of literacy skills, there's also like different ways to enter into story. And, and it, it's true that dissociate, I think I as a kid found that dissociative state so comforting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I just, the last road trip during, right in June, Chris and I, we went to, um, we drove to Iowa to see my mom. Uh, it was a short trip because of everything that happened. And <laughs> it's what, about 11 hours? And we listened to a book on tape. That, and I pulled up in my driveway at like 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, that was the quickest trip of my life. I was just totally immersed. I think, mm -hmm. was it The Dirt the dirt Road? I don't remember the name. Some new a book that's out there about um, um, the immigration, kind of what's going on in our country and kind of coming over. So that just sticks out for me. It's totally, totally checked out. There's, um, I'm going to read a quote from your book. And I'm also just not the best reader. So I want to own that on this podcast. You say, this is another benefit to story. It creates resilience to trauma by allowing us to feel safe and teaching us what we need to learn, all while affirming the importance of our reality and leaving us better off. Story is a radical affirmation of possibility in times of crisis. There were so many things that I took from your book, but there is something about this for where we are at and what we are dealing with. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to this as a, as a well, as a time of crisis for, for some, and as this is not a time of crisis for others, right? We have students that we work with are like, this is not a crisis, <laughs> this is my life. Um, and, you know, Jamie brought this up. And so Jamie, you can probably say it better than me as we were thinking about, you know, like the, the power of this book and you highlighted this already a little bit, but it can be scary for teachers to feel as though 
they're going to open up a can of worms that they don't know how to process themselves, especially right now. And so I don't, I guess I don't have a really concrete question, but I'm wondering what comes up for you, any advice um, during this time of crisis um, that all of us are going through? Yeah, of course, because <laughs> I did write that. Um, I, I think for me, when we search back, I think that the reason that some people think this is a crisis and some people think that this is just, you know, business as usual, is a lack of awareness of like the stories from the past and, and, and the history and the context that we're in. And so as we look back, drawing out those stories from the past that make us aware that number one, this isn't new, but number two, that we know what to do or there are people who, who have made their own solutions. So I'm thinking about, we rewatched the movie about Harriet Tubman at some point during, during this, um, during COVID with two of my three kids were here living at home and they're adults. I shouldn't say kids, they're like 25 and 22. But um, they, and we rewatched it and we all just sort of like at the end of it, we're like, so what Harriet Tubman did is almost superhuman, right? But not. And we we are called to, to, to do our version of that. And her story of really feeling as though her options were change, save people or die. At least for me, made me realize like the stakes have always been this high, right? The stakes have always been this high. And some people knew it, right? It's that great, there's this great William Gibson quote, he's a science fiction writer, and he always says, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed, right? And I have applied that to like, trauma's always here and it's not evenly distributed either, right? And so the folks for whom the gap between like trauma, you know, and experience, yeah. it, you know, has varying gaps. But as you look at the stories from the past of people who have done this, um, who, who've lived through, lived through worse trauma than we're in right now and done super heroic things, it calls up something in us that makes us realize there's possibility for us to do that in big and small ways. You know, and I, I love, I'm a deep believer in very tiny acts of heroism and that, you know, one kid in a classroom displaying kindness to another kid can be an act of enormous heroism that you're encouraging through story. Um, I, you know, that, that at least to me feels the same for them as, as, as what they read when they read Harriet Tubman or, or watch a movie about Harriet Tubman. Um, I, and I've also been reading, I've been rereading a lot of Jewish post-Holocaust writers because I feel as though there's a message in there, um, you know, from Eli Wiesel and Abraham Joshua Heschel, that there's a message in there for us about what the human spirit can actually endure and also what it looks like when we don't fight fascism, right? So I think, I think those stories show us it is possible to do an enormous number of amazing things and, and that we get to feel it in our bodies. And so we really know like somatically it is possible to do that because I can feel what it feels like, right? And I can feel what heroism or bravery looks like in the face of utter fear, panic, and you know dismay, and I but I can feel it, so I know it's possible. I love that. 
I love that and it's because it's the process for both the student and the teacher. I think that's what's standing out for me, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, I I I tried very hard in my classroom never to be the expert on everything. Yeah. There are certain things I'm the expert on. Like I read Sanskrit, you don't. Fine. Right. <laughs> like, but that like that's just a statement of fact, right? Like, like you're not gonna you're not gonna read that Sanskrit thing and tell me what it says. But but I I think the ability to show up as a teacher displaying intellectual curiosity and saying, I'm not the expert in this, but I'll bring you the expert in this through a book, a story, a movie, right? A reading, a, a blog post. I'll bring you the expert so that you can learn, so that we can learn from them together. And I think that, I don't know if it's really humility. I think it's just good teaching where you, you, you show your students your process for how you learn about something. And that might be a way to face into things that teachers might otherwise be nervous about. I'm a story listener and I'm gonna model that for you. Here's how we listen to stories together. I shared a, a document in the, I don't know if you guys even had a chance to look at, I shared a letter in our Google Docs, a principal in Upper New York wrote to, I don't even know who he wrote the letter to parents, if he wrote it to his, his staff, but essentially he said, you know, let's, let's quit worrying about what our kids are, are missing. Let's quit worrying about, do we need to catch them up? Um, and he basically came back to your message, Michelle. He said, let's let them tell their stories. They will have learned more in this year than they maybe have learned in any other year if we let them tell their stories. Um, can you speak to that? I just thought it was such a wise and well-written thing. And, and I thought it, it fit your work so well. And I, as, as kids do return to class from this pandemic, the role of story seems incredibly important. I just wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, why wouldn't you take something that we all know helps you process difficult things through metaphoric distance? Why wouldn't you use that to help kids transition, right? Because we, very few people are great at transition, right? You see that in the classroom all the time. Oh, it's time for recess. You know, all hell breaks loose, and then you're like, "Oh my gosh, I have to herd cats, right?" I mean, and every every point of transition is hard, and so coming back to school is going to be hard. Leaving school is hard. Coming back to school is going to be hard. So why wouldn't you use the skill you know builds resilience to that? Tell, like, you know, write down your story, draw your story, tell me your story, and and if you can give folks. A, a schema to use, whether they use the three-part thing where they say, you know, what's going on, what happened, and, and what did I do about it, or or they use, you know, who, what, when, where, why, or you use, there's like, a, I have a whole bunch of different story, I'm like drawing them in the air, right, I and mean, that's how somatic it is to me, right, there's there's this thing called the, the Lowry loop, which came from Eugene Lowry, who's actually, a, teaches people how to preach, and he he talks about descending into the problem, having the, the aha moment where it flips and you're like, oh, I'm looking at this differently, which he calls like crazy Jesus moment, right? Where you're like, oh, I look at it differently. And then you can, you can take what you've learned and climb out of the problem, right? And that's the Lowry loop. So there's a billion ways you can teach kids or you know, young adults or adults to do this, but give them a structure so that they don't feel lost 
and allow them to create the metaphoric distance by making making it making themselves into a character and write and draw and tell and act in any way that works for them it will help them process this information you know and i actually weirdly with all this talk about story i don't love like journaling as a therapy practice i know it works I've read all the research, 100% it works. But I think it's missing an element and the element is structure. Because one of the things that happens in trauma, well, I had no intention of talking about this, but anyway, one of the things that happens in trauma, right, is that you get stuck in a loop and you can't get out and you're reinforcing, 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 reinforcing that loop. And one of the things that giving a story structure can do, if you pick good story structure, there's always an exit ramp. And you're actually, inducing the exit ramp by, by asking the questions in order. So, and then what happened and then what happened and then what happened and then what did you do about it? What did you do about it is the exit ramp from trauma because there's agency. There's a way that you can actually feel like you succeeded. There's a sense of it being over. And these are things that when you're re-experiencing and re-experiencing trauma, and I know this for myself, I have certain traumatic things that have happened to me in my life, that if I get on telling the story, I watch my husband's eyes glaze over. He literally loses interest. And I'm thinking, I'm telling you about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. And he's like, honestly, I know he's planning things in his head. And I finally realized that the reason that happens is because I'm just doing this. And, and it, you know, enough years of watching someone do that, like you couldn't pay attention either, you know, but being able to give people structure and all of the story strategies have an exit ramp. What would I have done differently? How did I feel about it? What did I learn? Right. Or what did you do about it? Or in terms of the Lowry loop, like what was the crazy thought that allowed you to exit to exit that low place or if you i'm looking i'm looking at my slides slides to you know like what or or what's the future of possibility right one of the other things i use a lot is this concept of of present state future state and going back and forth between them like what's the tension where possibility is all of those things are an exit ramp from trauma and so as kids come back into the classroom and they're trying to process traumatic things if you give them story what you're giving them is both an experience in having an exit ramp, telling a story, listening to stories, having a, an experience that's happening at enough of a metaphoric distance that you're safe. Like it gives you all these different things. And it's like this very elegant, simple little package, which is why it has lasted for us through millennia of being human, right? Because it doesn't do just one thing. It does so many things right. Thank you. I really yeah. think, I, I like, you know, I've kind of lived the concept of freedom in a frame, and I know how much I love a frame. But then I like to work within that frame, and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Um, but they're both. And I love the how you uh, formulated that, the idea of we need to give them the structure for their story so they have an exit ramp. That's really brilliant. I mean, that that would be very helpful to those teachers who want kids to process what they've been through, just aren't quite sure what's safe. And that's right, right. And, and the structure, you know, you're providing safety because it's, a, it's not, it's a structure that's been pressure tested over millennia, mm -hmm. right? We know traumatized groups can tell these stories this way and be okay. We've seen it over and over and over again from, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Through all kinds of different um, stories that people have told about 
the origins of people on the planet. And, and you know, we've, we've seen this exact structure in, in early, the earliest wisdom tales all the way through, you know, any, any wisdom tradition that you see. And I'm specifically not saying faith tradition because I think like Buddhism or something which doesn't consider it a faith follows the same patterns. And so we know it's safe. Yeah. Now, are we good at it as teachers is a whole other you know, story, but, but the, the patterns themselves we know structurally work for people's minds, bodies, spirits, intellects. And those are ancient patterns, I'm guessing. Yeah, now there's nothing new. I mean, we're not doing anything new here. We're just aware because of a lot of neuroscience, why and how it works, which I think is a great time to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love that combination of ancient wisdom tradition and, and neuroscience because all we're being we're suddenly able to see is, oh, that's what's going on in there and why it works. Right. And people act like it's some big revelation, but we already knew it worked. You're not proving anything. Right. You know, I keep telling my folks, Oz didn't give anything to the Tin Man that he didn't already have. And you, you and I are old enough to know that song. That's exactly right. I could continue it if I could sing, which I can't. You know, so there's also like all this information and I think it's too much to go into now, but I'm like staring at this PowerPoint presentation that I brought up so that I would, you know, make sure I didn't forget anything. And there's also like some very formalized ways of addressing this in the classroom, right? I mean, if people wanted to get together and, you know, learn to do this in the classroom, there's research, there's really formal research on how to create an emotional experience, how to create intellectual experience, you know, like very with flowcharts, like I have flowcharts and the whole thing. Um, but, but really it's something because you yourself are a story practitioner too, you can wade into in the ways that feel safe to you as a teacher. Yeah, and that, I think that's a big piece, right? Of you gotta stay regulated. You're not the expert, but if you can stay regulated and kind of provide that space for your students, that's, they're going to be able to dissociate and reflect. They're going to be able to know that, yes, you really want me to share. And that's, that's the big piece, but it starts with the, it starts with the teacher. My fourth grade teacher retired about 20 years ago. which tells you how old I am, but my fourth grade teacher retired and my, I knew somebody who worked with her in the school district. It's, it was my, um, somebody like, you know, one of those sort of elder states people of my family, like one of the women in my family worked with her. And so I came home to Ohio. I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And she presented me with a book that we had, that I had written in fourth grade this woman had kept and when she was retiring she got rid of all the stuff in her office and she knew she could pass it to me and I looked at that thing and thought I knew she was a good teacher but she was a freaking brilliant genius like you know it was we all wrote books and, and and it was on construction paper with crayon and we did all these different forms. So she had us write a poem about, some, about an animal we loved. She had us like do all these things. She was doing all this stuff in 1976 or 74 or whatever. And had then, and I looked at that book and was like, I didn't, I didn't, my first thought wasn't like, oh, it wasn't IQ. My first thought was like, she's a freaking genius because she took us through all these forms. And I looked at that thing and the presence of that like eight year old me was 100% clear. And I knew 
from reading what I wrote that I'd also felt listened to because she was asking mm -hmm. us to, to give these things to her. She never wrote on it. It was intact and perfect. She didn't write on it, but I knew from looking at that document, that artifact, what magic she'd created by doing that. And it was just, you know, Friday afternoon, we had like language arts or whatever it was. And we just worked through these forms. And then she had us put it together as a book. And I don't know why she still had mine, but I'm glad she did because like, you know, I'm not sure I would have gotten to see it otherwise. My, I don't know if my parents would still have had it or whatever, but, um, and I thought it's so simple. Yeah. I knew I was going to love doing podcasts. I didn't know I was going to love it this much. My mind, literally my brain is just going hundred miles an hour. It's jam packed with stuff that you've just taught me. And I, I'm eternally grateful. This is holy buckets. You're, you're doing good work. I cannot thank you enough, Michelle. Well, I'm really glad to get to talk about it in this context because I miss teaching a lot. Yeah. And we need it in schools, man. If there's something that can just, a tool that exists, we're not reinventing the wheel. We just need to bring it back in. We need to bring it back in. Um, so again, the, the book, your most recent book, Resilience, the Life-Saving Skill of Story. Um, for, for all y'all listening to this, purchase this book. I, I We've already said it, but this is something that all, all of us as educators need to read. And, and I think we've touched on it. Um, but storytelling fits in almost all domains of education. That's what also stood out in your book of like, I could see myself as a school social worker, uh, soon to be school psychologist using this regularly. I could see the music, the band, right? The arts, the physical education teachers using this. I can see uh, a math, uh, I mean, you name it. Anyone, anyone can fit in that. So. Um, thanks for bringing this back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say for the book, like if you're a teacher, first of all, it's really short. It's like yes. bathroom reading. Second of all, every single chapter has at least two or three, sometimes four or five actual exercises to use. So you don't yep. even really need to read the book. <laughs> you could just go straight to the box at the end that has all the exercises at the end of every chapter. And please I, I, I steal them. Disagree. I respectfully disagree. Read the book. I know, but steal the exercises and use them in your classrooms. Like, it, you know, it's something that we always said when, you know, in college teaching, somebody once wrote a syllabus and we don't even know who it was because we already, we stole it. Yeah. So, you know, like steal it, use it, it's yours. That's, yeah. that's my takeaway from it. Well, and I mean, I agree with Steve. You can read the whole book. And I think the cool thing is, I mean, you're teaching the art of storytelling through your own stories, which I, it's just easier for me to learn that way, right? I don't know about y'all, but if I'm hearing someone or reading someone's story, like it's easy, yeah, it's easier for me to pick up on kind of things I'm supposed to be doing. And it makes oh, sense. I know it makes the point. <laughs> uh, but thank you for joining us. This is this is awesome. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And Steve and Jamie, I know your your brains are probably going 100 miles an hour as well, but oh, definitely. So uh, I, I as well love the context love the idea and it's so practical just in every way yeah thank you michelle thank, thank you. you so much for having me it's so exciting to be on your newly born podcast i really appreciate it yeah well you make it enjoyable this is why we're doing it so why we're doing it so thanks <laughs>